0: I deeply appreciate that chorus from that hymn that we're learning. All we have is Christ because it leads us right into Philippians chapter 3 this morning. I want to say good morning to all of you as we go into a series on knowing Christ from Philippians 3. I'm going to read the section that we're going to go through. Philippians 3 verses 4 through 7. It's a short section, but it's the beginning of Paul's testimony. But, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. You know, the Word of God guarantees something for you and me. It guarantees that we are going to ultimately stand before God one day, His judgment seat the Bema Seed, and we are going to experience the most transparent moment possible. Hebrews chapter 9 says, verse 27, It is appointed to man to die once, and after that comes judgment. We don't know exactly what that will look like for the believer, right? Romans 14 says that we're going to give an account to our deeds First Corinthians talks about a burning that will happen where our works that are hay, wood, and stubble will be burned away and what remains is precious gold and things that were done for Christ. As I imagine myself before God's holiness, before his throne, as I imagine myself standing there by myself before the Lord, I don't see myself saying a whole lot, really. I see myself more as speechless, not in a place where I'm going to defend myself, a place where I am in utter transparent dependence upon God's determination for my eternal destiny. And in that moment, I will want to be able to say one thing I knew Jesus. I know Jesus. Put it another way, all I have is Jesus Christ in that moment. All we have is Christ. That's all that really matters is, did we know Jesus before that moment? Do I have a personal relationship and walk with Jesus? That's all that matters in that moment. And I'm telling you that that moment is coming for all of us. As we've lost loved ones this past year, as we think about eternity, it's coming soon. And it's appointed, and God knows exactly when that time is going to happen. And in that moment, we need to be able to say, individually and personally, all I have is Christ. And He is the supreme passion of my life. Our destiny in that moment would be determined. So I want to ask... Each one of you, as we approach this text, Paul, he he lays out his heart and his pre-Christ days before us as somewhat of a spiritual resume. Uh, What are you trusting in? Where are you placing your confidence in terms of that moment where you stand before God? What are you staking your eternal destiny on? Is it your spiritual resume, your personal resume, or is it Christ? That's the question of the morning. What are you trusting in? Because my friends, it is so easy to build up in your minds a spiritual resume to try to buffer yourself away from God in that moment. To say, how can I live with myself? How can I think i i know i'm going to be in that moment before god how can i survive that moment well if your answer is it is my spiritual resume that's the wrong way to be thinking it's the wrong way to be trusting and it needs correction if your answer is christ then that's the right way to be thinking that's the only way to be trusting and that's the only way you or i will survive that moment for eternity christ christ is all Paul works through his spirituality in these verses and he begins with his prior spiritual resume that he was trusting in. And I want to tell you something. As a Pharisee, he had an unparalleled resume. He was superior to all Pharisees and nobody could out-Pharisee Paul. Paul was really the Pharisee of the Pharisees. He had a strong, strong resume resume from that position. We're going to look at, in verses 4 and 5, his inherited privileges and his uncontestable status, at least from the world's perspective. Now, why does Paul go into his resume? Why is he sort of opening up all of his uh, privileges and achievements? What's he up to here? Well, let me tell you what he's doing. He's shepherding the flock. And he's putting himself out there in full transparency to shepherd the flock to protect them, as we talked about last week. Because there were Judaizers, people who were from the Jewish race, who were coming to the church, and they were promoting a Jesus-plus gospel. Yeah, you can love Jesus in the New Covenant Church, but hey, if you really want to be a genuine Christian who has confidence that you're in, you have to become a Jew first, like us. And then you can become a Christian if you want the total package, if you want the security of your faith. In essence, they were saying, look, you guys, you're kind of new at this. You don't really know what's going on. And I want to sort of bring some questions to the table of, have you been circumcised yet? You know, because all true Jews have been circumcised. And those who became Jews as an adult later sort of proselytized over into the Jewish community, they came by way of circumcision. It just is facts and so these false teachers these wolves in sheep's clothing were showing up to the church and they were promoting a Jesus plus gospel they were saying we want to add a work to the gospel and Paul wants to undo that teaching he wants to deconstruct it and it's funny the way Paul does it Paul has a sense of humor here He's putting himself out there, basically saying, look, okay, you want to talk in terms of being a Pharisee? You want to talk in terms of adding works to your faith? You want to add works to Jesus? You want to go there and do that? Hey, I can play on that turf. I can play that game with you. But guess what? You're not going to win because nobody out Pharisees the Apostle Paul. That's what he's doing here. He's saying, look, I can talk about works, I can talk about heritage, I can talk about history, and I can run with the best of them because nobody out-credentials me. That's what Paul does. He's using a, a form of logical arguing, which is called the reductio ad absurdum. In other words, he's making a logical argument. In other words, how accomplished he was as a Pharisee, and he's teasing that all the way out to the nth degree to show how ludicrous it is to actually follow that line of reasoning to try to get yourself into heaven. So he pushes it all the way to the edge of, hey, you want to talk about works righteousness and that being the ladder that you're going to climb to get you into heaven? I'll talk about that. I'll go there with you. I'll show you how accomplished someone can be. Let me just talk about my accomplishments. And so he goes up the ladder of his accomplishments to tease that out to show that it's absurd to trust in that to get to heaven. In essence, he wants to do a big setup and turn the tables on the Judaizers. You want to be a Judaizer? Let me show you what being a Judaizer looks like and then show you how weak that is as a reason for thinking that you're going to heaven he turns the tables on them he does he does a massive setup to make a massive reversal in philippians 3 well first of all he had inherited privileges that's what we're looking at in verses four and five Inherited privileges, we're going to look at four privileges that he has, and then we're going to look at three achievements. He has privileges, things that he inherited, like an Ivy League-born child. He's, he's born for greatness. Without ever lifting a hand, he was born in God's family, being a Jew, in terms of the Old Testament anyway. He had all the rights and privileges of education and accolades that were just handed to him. It was like he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. And then after that, we're going to show you from Scripture his achievements, how he didn't just rely on what he'd been given, but he went for it in terms of being a Pharisee. So first of all, four privileges. He had an uncontestable status, but the first privilege is he kept God's law from birth. Verse 5, he says, circumcised on the eighth day. Well, before I get there, I didn't even read verse 4. Let's go back. Verse 4 explained it, but I should read it first. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I just wanted to read that because you know what Paul's doing? He's saying it's on. We're going to talk about confidence in the flesh. I'll give you confidence in the flesh. It's on. Now, verse 5, here we go. First of all, circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, on the eighth day as a baby, a little Hebrew baby, Saul, who became Paul, he was circumcised, followed the law perfectly. In other words, he had Jewish parents who signed him up and started him out in the Old Testament law system. To be circumcised um, was basically to say, from birth, I was going to keep the whole law. I'm destined to keep the Old Testament law for my whole life, and I'm going to do it well. We know that Paul was picking up on this idea of circumcision because he had just mentioned it in verse 3. Remember, the Judaizers, these false teachers were saying, you got to have this happen for you to be in Christ. And he's going, no, verse 3, here's the definition of a Christian. We are the circumcision. To be circumcised really isn't... Talking in terms of the external act, it's talking about being transformed from the inside out. To be circumcised is, according to the Old Testament and the New Testament, to have a circumcision of the heart. It means to be transformed by faith. And you can listen to that again from last week's message. He's saying this is who we are as Christians. Whether you go through that act or not, that really doesn't matter. It's a transformed heart that he's talking about. But he says, I went through that act. And before any of you as a Philippian church, this flock in Philippi, before any of you ever thought about the idea of being circumcised or that being required of you, I had that done. I mean, that was done as a little baby to me. And so it really isn't a big deal. Secondly, he says, I was racially pure. Look at this in verse 5 again. Of the people of Israel. He's a Jew. Now, he was born in Tarsus. He was born in um, Cilicia, which was a subset of Tarsus. He, Acts 22 talks about this, so it's a Greco-Roman culture. He was schooled in the arts of, of Greek literature. He was erudite as a Greek scholar. We see that in Acts 17 on Mars Hill. He was taking on you know, the scholars and philosophers of the day, giving them something new. He was very bright, but guess what? He was ethnically, racially a Jew. He had parents who were Jews. Unlike Timothy, his, his protege, who had a father who was a Gentile and a mother who was a Jew, he was full-blooded Jew. He was, and he's pointing that out. Acts 9 11, Acts 21-39, he, he talks about his Jewishness often. And then thirdly, he was respected according to his tribe, of the tribe of Benjamin. Why is that significant? I'm just kind of giving you a little bit of a history lesson here. Bear with me. Old Testament talks about the kingdom of God being Israel, where you have the first king who is Saul, the second king who is David, third king, the son of David, Solomon. And then you have a kingdom that divides, and you have two kings um, that divide the kingdom. You have Rehoboam and Jeroboam. The northern kingdom goes to Jeroboam. That ten tribes of Israel go up there and that becomes Israel. And then you have Rehoboam who stays and that is the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And so the tribes that remained were the special tribes. They were, I mean, Paul is saying, look, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. That was the tribe that stayed. That's the strong tribe because it was loyal to the Davidic covenant. And I was part of that. And guess what? Who was Paul named for? Originally his name was? Saul, he was named for the first king of Israel, Saul. And so he's making all of those connections, again, to say, look, if you want to talk about works righteousness and being on the inside of Judaism and having it all together spiritually for a resume, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. You can't, you can't top that. He had the namesake, the credentials. All right, then, fourthly, he was educated by a master. He was of the Hebrew... He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. What does that mean? Well, not only is pointing to his ethnicity as a Hebrew, it's pointing to his education. His parents, Paul's parents, did not leave him in Tarsus to be educated. Probably as a young boy, a young Hebrew child, maybe 12 years old, they shipped him to Jerusalem. We're going to send you to the motherland, and you're going to be trained by the premier scholar of the day Gamaliel and this is mentioned explicitly in Acts 22 that he was trained under Gamaliel. I just want to point out something to you this education was strong he he knew Hebrew he could write Hebrew and he also knew Greek so he was interdisciplinary and he was renaissance Paul was a very strong scholar and Someone who shouldn't just be trifled with in debate. I think a lot of times people put Paul in sort of a subclass idea. This, you know, traveling, wandering missionary who was in and out of prison. And he preached Christ and him crucified. And so he kind of dumbed down the message. But if you were to look at Philippians 2 and we were to ha- take time and open that up. Paul said, look, I didn't come with superior, superiority of speech and wisdom when I preached to you. But guess what? He could have. He could have. He didn't try to out-philosophize people, but he could have. He was the head of his class. He was strong in terms of leadership. He wrote the book of Romans, which is the theology book of the Bible, tying all of the Bible together. This man was the top of his class. He's very strong. If you just peek back with me at at Acts chapter 22, I might show it on the screen, Acts 22, the beginning there, he's talking to Jews and trying to witness to them with his testimony. And he says in verse 1, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. In other words... He, you know, he's talking in Greek and he's moving along and just like at Athens when he would speak you know, Greek and, and he also, you know, speaking Koine Greek and he wrote half of the New Testament in Koine Greek and then suddenly he's, he, he just changes languages immediately, effortlessly, to minister more personally to Jews, to people who speak Hebrew. This is Paul. He was trained to do this He was a Jew. So again, he's pointing this out saying, remember who you're talking to here. Then he moves on into his personal achievements. So we've looked at, you know, four different ways that he inherited privileges, but now three different achievements. Number one, he was affirmed by a title. This is the end of verse 5. As to the law, look at this, a Pharisee. There were 6,000 of those only at one time. Out of all the Jews, there was a sect or a club of a collegial um, group of men who were law keepers. And they were the best at it. And there were only 6,000 at one time. They kept a, a strong accounting of who the Pharisees were. And these Pharisees were men of discipline. It was born out of the intertestamental period, after the Old Testament, before the dawning of the New Testament. In those 400 years, Phariseeism was born. And they trusted in their own ability to interpret and handle the Word of God with great fastidiousness and precision. They were the best at it. And Paul reached Pharisee. He did. That was his title that he was... Clinging to. It means separated one. It's a master interpreter of the law. As I was thinking about Paul reaching Pharisee, it made me think, you know, he really did believe that he had it all together. The hypocrisy of being a Pharisee is very scary. You think, oh, well, that's for those Pharisee types. But do we ever trust in our own works righteousness? Don't we think that we sometimes have it all together, that we've done enough? To be okay in that judgment moment before God. The rich young ruler, sometimes we, you know, we, go, we get down on him, but he was this young man that, that came sliding in on his knees, according to Mark's account. He was bowing low before Jesus and saying, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? How can I get in? I've kept the law in all of these ways. What else do I need to do? What law do I need to keep to have eternal life? And, and Jesus looked at him and said, why do you call me a good teacher? There's no one good but God. He's trying to open this man's heart up so that he'll see that he, he's talking to the Savior. He's talking to God himself. So he's trying to get to this man's heart. And this man's going, okay, I've kept the Ten Commandments. You know, I haven't stolen. I haven't lied. haven't committed adultery. I haven't done this. I haven't done that. So, so what else do I need to do? Jesus wants to, at that point, completely open him up, open up the idolatry of his heart where he's trusting. He says, look, just sell all that you have and follow me. And so what he's doing is he's exposing that man and his need for Christ. The rich young ruler wanted to be a law keeper like a Pharisee. He wanted to achieve his way into heaven. And Jesus deconstructs that and gets right to his heart and says, you need to let go of the world and follow me. You need to see who you're talking to if you want eternal life. Eternal life is found in Jesus. And this rich young ruler went away sad, it says, and didn't follow Christ. But I think the rich young ruler, at some level, was better off than Paul. Paul's not even desperately thinking he's in a deficit. He's just going, look, as to the law, Pharisee, I did it. I attained eternal life through works. Well, then he goes on to affirm his passion. Look at this in verse 6. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Zeal in any religion is the single highest virtue. To be zealous, to be all in and all about your passion for what you're doing is the chief attribute in religion. And Paul was passionate. He was very passionate. He was evil in his heart, and he was an executioner. He was what some people have called him to be a a Pharisee terrorist. He was a Pharisee terrorist. He terrorized families. But you know why he did it? He did it because he thought he was doing the right thing for who? God. He he knew that Jesus had been hung on a tree, and the Old Testament says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so he said to himself, well, the Christian religion, that's all a farce, and and God cursed Jesus, and so now I'm going to stamp out Christianity in the name of God. He was a zealous Christian pursuer. The word persecutor? It's dioko. It means to pursue, to chase after, to hound, to to grab people. That was Paul. He was a first sergeant type leader. I mean, this is a guy who not only had the inherited education, not only was accomplished in education all the way up to being a Pharisee, this was a guy who got after it to actually stamp out other movements that he perceived were against his God. It was like the Gestapo that had come to town. Turn back to Acts chapter 22. Again, Paul's testimony. We kind of bumped right up to this, but listen to what he says. Verse 4. Well, verse 3. I'm a Jew, a born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God. As all of you are this day, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. Turn back to Acts chapter 7. Remember Stephen and his incredible sermon? He preaches and comes to a crescendo where in verse 51 he calls the Pharisees and those listening, listening in. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart. So he, he knifes them and goes right to the core issue of their hearts. There were people who were unbelieving, and these people flew at him. They were enraged, and they put their fingers in their ears. They didn't want to hear what they thought was blasphemy from Stephen. They ground their teeth and went after him. Stephen looked up into heaven and saw Jesus standing there on behalf of Stephen. But by contrast, look at What verse 58 says about Saul, who is Paul. Then they, these are the Sanhedrin, cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's Paul. Paul is overseeing the execution of Stephen. Verse 8, I mean, chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And then... Look at the persecution that's happening here and how wide and vast it is. Verse 1 still. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. And then you have, but Saul was ravaging the church. Now stop there. When, when it says he was ravaging the church, it's not just... Saul, who is Paul, on assignment with a few families here and there. No, he is the Gestapo Pharisee terrorist in charge, dooming Christianity around cities. Thousands of Christians, thousands of people would come to Christ, and he's trying to shut this multi-thousand movement down. That's who this leader was. Paul had gray matter, he had strength of leadership, and he was doing it against the church, ravaging the church like a wolf, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. It's very passionate, and he knew it, and he, he felt horrible about what he had done and made no excuses regarding that. Galatians 1.13, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism. He was a Judaizer. How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. That's Paul. You know what Paul wanted the church to know? Paul wanted the church to know that even though he was behind bars in Rome, as a prisoner shackled to Roman guards, he, he wanted the church to know by bringing this up that he had previously been on the other side of the bars as the one who was the persecutor of Christians behind bars. I mean, think about the turning of the tables here. Paul used to be the Christian persecutor, the Christian pursuer, the Christian executioner, right? And, and now he's the Christian in prison, the premier witness for Christ behind bars, the turning of the tables. Is amazing. And he wanted that to powerfully sink in to the church, saying, Look, I am giving my life for the Jesus only gospel. I was against the Jesus only gospel, and now I'm giving my ever loving life for the Jesus only gospel, because that's the true gospel. Jesus was, con- I mean, Paul was concerned for people's souls. He wants the church to be safe on that appointed day of judgment. So the way that he's doing it is by being that kind of radical missionary for Christ. So he's affirmed prior to his conversion by his passion, by his title, and then by his righteousness. Look at this back in Philippians 3. By his own righteousness. It says, as to righteousness under the law, what what does he say here? Blameless. I mean... Just think with me for a second about the swelling hypocrisy in Paul's mind. Could you imagine saying of yourself, I have kept the entire Old Testament perfectly? Blameless, faultless. Nobody can come to me and say, you know, there was this one time that you kind of messed up. and, And perhaps he even thought... In terms of the Day of Atonement and the different remedies that the, the Old Testament law offers for people to have a cleansed conscience again, you know, the, the lamb offerings and the sin offerings and the Day of Atonement, once a year where he would feel free from his sins again. I mean, maybe that's part of his blamelessness, but I think there is a swelling pride where he believed he had it all together. We say, well, you know, that wicked Paul, how could he be that way? But it's so easy for you and me also to use Ways and means in Christianity to salve our own consciences, right? I mean, I'm calling the church to be baptized. I want any one of you to be baptized who's not yet followed the Lord and believers' baptism to come and to get wet for Jesus and to to stand up in front of all of us and say, look, I love and proclaim Jesus as my Lord because He's changed my heart. I'm calling kids to that. I'm calling teenagers to that. I'm calling young adults to that, middle-aged and seniors. We all need to follow the Lord and celebrate the fact that we've been saved in that way. That's what the Bible calls us to do got a Palm Sunday service coming up for that but I don't want any one of you to do that as some sort of religious rite where you believe that by doing that you're made more righteous before God I'd rather you hold off and get clear on the gospel first and then bear fruit in keeping with the gospel right I mean don't observe communion as some kind of saving work that makes you feel better about your position with the Lord. That's not what it means to observe communion. Okay? I mean, it's clear to understand. Don't get involved in needy relationships. There are small group relationships that become like the confessional booth where you're, you're meeting with somebody to tell them your sins again so that you feel right with God. I think it's important to confess our sins, it's very important for us to observe communion, and it's important to be baptized, but never to use any one of those spiritual means of grace as um, an addition point to our salvation. Can't do that. Can't do that. In fact, hypocrisy is, is damning. It's damning to think that you are right with God by what you've done. It distances you from the Lord. Well, not only did Paul have this sort of inherited privilege, this unparalleled resume, but secondly, we're going to look in verses, well, we're going to just look at verse 7 this morning, but verses 7 through 11, his unparalleled resolution. And the reason I say that he had an unparalleled resolution is simply this. Paul made the most significant resolution that any one of us can make in this life it's an unparalleled resolve and that is to follow christ instead of resting in works look at verse seven but whatever gain i had i counted as loss for the sake of christ this is paul's radical reversal he's he's Extended the argument that nobody can out-Pharisee him all the way to the nth degree. And then he turns the tables on it and ultimately counts all of that as loss, as nothing, not important. And I call this an illumined accounting. Why? Because only the Spirit of God, when he turns the lights on in your heart, can show you that self-achievement means nothing when you're talking about your own spirituality. When you're talking about the safety and security of your own soul, there's only one answer, and that's Christ. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. That's what Paul is doing here in verse 7. Literally, in verse 7, he says, but whatever gains, it's plural there, whatever gains... He's talking in terms of a two-column spreadsheet... He's using for you accounting buffs. He's using accounting terminology. There's sort of a plus column, and then there's a minus column. And in the plus column, he's looking at that with all his gains, all of his achievements, all that he inherited, all of his privileges. It would be like you saying, look, I've given to the church. I've, I've served at Mountain View. I've, I've joined Awana. I listened to 8 million verses to kids. I, you know, I, I, I did VBS several times. You know, I, I, I gave a lot towards this. I did that. I witnessed to people. I, I had this experience, you know, this one time. I'm part of, th- I'm part of this political party. I, you know, I'm against that. I, you know, I want this for the whole world. I mean, all these things are what people will build up in their plus column, their, their assets column. And Paul says there's a radical reversal because he looked at that suddenly through the eyes of faith, through the eyes of Jesus Christ, and that plus column was like a computer shutdown where your computer kindly goes to the, you know, the dark screen or you know, the blue screen of death or whatever, and, and, and your, your column just drops, and then you, you turn your computer back on it, comes up, and the column is empty. And you see it differently, and you go, you know what? This assets column is now deficits. This plus column is now zero. It's the accountant's eye that adds up all the pluses, all the achievement, and and he has the addition mark, and underneath that, it means nothing. And let me take it one level worse. Trusting in a plus column, trusting in the idea that you're doing something to get yourself into heaven is not only zero, it's damnable. It sends you to hell to trust in your plus column, to believe that you can achieve or create ladder rungs up to heaven by what you do or who you are or what name you have or what family you were born into. All of that is loss. Put in another category, another way, Paul lost a lot of things by coming to Christ. He was the top of his class. He had intellectual relationships, he had friendships, he had accolades. And he became this wandering, traveling, homeless missionary who loved his life and loved his Lord as a single man getting beaten for the gospel. First Corinthians 11, 39 times he got the lash whip on his back. It was 39, not 40, because the 40th blow usually killed the person. So they would hold off one blow. That's why he said, 39 times I was beaten. And that happened several times. He was lost at sea, shipwrecked. He was stoned and left for dead. He was imprisoned. Why? All he had was Christ. He knew that that plus column meant nothing, and it was worthwhile to follow Christ. Christ filled his heart. When Christ satisfies you, you realize that everything that you've been trying to satisfy yourself with is just cotton candy. You know, it goes in your mouth, it tastes sweet for a second, it's gone. It doesn't satisfy, it doesn't nourish, it doesn't strengthen, it doesn't fill, it's not enjoyable, it doesn't satisfy. Being converted is verse 7. Let me say this very clearly to you. If your conversion isn't verse 7-like, you need to question whether or not you're converted. It's my job to, to say it straight. For your own soul's sake, you, a Christian says the world, it's, it's lost It didn't satisfy, doesn't satisfy, doesn't earn me favor with God, isn't going to save me. My pride and hypocrisy will condemn me. That's loss. It's empty. All I have is Christ. That's conversion. That's salvation. Not a popular message, but it's Paul's message from verse 7. Paul isn't someone to be just put in you know granite stone p-a-u-l paul as this super christian that you look at in this way that you say man you know oh that i could be like paul but i'll never be like him but at least i'm not judas iscariot no you're either judas or paul Judas, he listened to Jesus, he followed Jesus, he did miracles um, in the name of Jesus. He was empowered by Jesus. He, he was, you know, he, he kept the, the accounting for Jesus. You know, yeah, he sold Jesus out, but you know, I mean, no, he was, but he was the son of perdition. As Jesus put it, it would have been better that he not be born. He was evil, and he is the picture of the hypocritical Christian. The person who thinks they're in, who really is not. He's the branch in John 15 that did not bear fruit, was burned, cut off, burned, and thrown away. That's why Jesus says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit that remains, John 15. That's a true Christian. Paul was a true Christian. He was a believer. A lot of people, I've heard it said... You know, they get very sad over things that they lose, you know, a house fire. You know, say, man, I, I, I would grab those pictures. I mean, nowadays we have the cloud, right, when you send our pictures away. But all that, you know, I, what would I lose? But in Christ, a house fire happens. And you say, man, that was really hard. But all I have is Christ. There, there's a little glimmer of hope, even in the worst catastrophe. And you just know it's there in seed form, don't you? In your heart. That you have Christ, even with the worst of circumstances, you have Jesus. That's verse 7. Everything is loss for the sake of Christ. These are losses. These are deficits. You've got the two columns. You've got the what you thought were your assets that became deficits. And then you have the second column, which is Christ. You know, who humbled who humbled Paul to have this turning point moment? It was the only person that could outrighteousness Paul. I mean, Paul said, You can't out Pharisee me, boys, but you know what? Someone outrighteous to me, and that was Jesus. The only person that could humble Paul was Jesus. Look at look back at Acts chapter 9, real quickly. Acts 9. You saw verse 1, he's breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, which is the church, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Face to face with Jesus. And I love what happens. In verse 7, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw what? Nothing. So... Which eyes were open? Well, his physical eyes were open, but his spiritual eyes had been opened. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is the testimony that he gives of this, that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God had shone in the face of Jesus Christ. That was the action that was happening in Paul's heart by the Holy Spirit, where you say, Jesus, I see you, and you're all that I have, and you're the treasure. You're the pearl of great price. I'd sell everything for this pearl. I found treasure that satisfies Finally, but I love how Jesus deals with Saul. He blinds him. You know why I think Jesus blinded Saul? It wasn't just to be a symbol of the gospel. It was, it was to humble Paul. I, I, you know, I've never really been blinded very long. Maybe just the sunlight. But I was talking to a guy at a, one of the volleyball matches yesterday, and here at Grace and. And he was talking about how he had LASIK surgery done, and he was kind of joking around with me because we're sitting across the South Gym auditorium. And he says, "Hey, you know, let me show you how how good my far sightedness is now." And he said, "Read those words on the bottom line of that you know poster." And I'm going, "Uh, tele," and he's going, "It's telephone, you know, it's telephone. That's what that says." And and the numbers are dot dot nine zero seven dot dot dot. And I'm like, "Wow, okay, you know, I didn't get all that, so I was humbled." But he then went transparent with me and said, you know, I, doing LASIK surgery was great for me, but it was also very scary because for a few moments after you go through that surgery, you're completely blind. And he said, those four or five minutes are the longest moments of your life. I'm thinking, wow, you know, how helpless do you feel if you suddenly become blind? And people overcome that as a handicap with their other senses, and I understand that. But being blinded like Saul was, who became Paul, was humbling for him to show him all he had was Christ. And he did gain his eyesight back again. The scales fell from his eyes, and he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. And he became a preacher of the gospel immediately. And I sort of read through his testimony a bit. You know, he preached in Damascus, he, he gained favor with the disciples in Damascus, he gained favor through the relationship with Barnabas and Ananias, and then he went to the backside of the desert in Arabia, Galatians 1 talks about where he distanced himself from the apostles initially to gain credibility and time with the Lord and grow spiritually, and then he entered into um, fellowship with the apostles and became a significant leader in the early church. But it was all through humility. He couldn't trust his plus column. So please don't do that. If you're trusting in a work or your works, if God is revealing that to you, please repent of that. Please come to faith in Christ. See that Christ is your everything. Open your heart to Christ. Because judgment is coming. The final scene I'll take you to is in Matthew 7. This is the Sermon on the Mountain. This is a window into what... Some will experience, most will experience this version of the judgment seat. I hope not for any one of us. Jesus put it this way in verse 27 of chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Listen to this. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not... Prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name. Stop there. Do you see the compiling of the plus column category that that person is doing? That's a very scary way to be trying to defend yourself before a holy God. Hey, I I cast out demons. I was a preacher. I was a teacher. I prophesied in your name. I, I. I spread your name around evangelistically, perhaps. I was part of the Mighty Works Miracle Movement. I, I, there's no way that I, we can't know each other, right? There's not a problem here because I'm in. I was empowered by you. But here's the issue. Verse 23. And then I will declare to them, and these are the most horrifying words in all of the Bible to me, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You know, the difference between heaven and hell for you is whether you know Christ now. Don't be in the too late moment. It's too late now because you're standing before God and you're under judgment. Come to Christ now. Know him personally now. This is eternal life that you know him, says John 17, verse 3. Knowing Jesus, that's the difference maker. All I have is Christ, Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning in your word. We thank you for the gospel. We know that there's nothing good within us and Lord, we want to follow Paul's example to lose everything for the sake of Christ. thank you that you opened his eyes and thank you that you've opened our eyes to embrace you. And I pray that as believers we would not live under some bewitching spell where we would believe that we need to add to our column of deficits or assets to try to gain favor with you, but we would always come humbly beneath the cross realizing that it's by what you've done, not what we've done, and that the fruit of the Spirit comes out of that faith commitment, that it is your work alone that gets us to glory. We love you, God. Thank you for our church community. I pray that if there is anyone here who does not yet know you, that you would draw them to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.